another episode of Take This Job and Love It. This is a podcast from Yale's Office of Career Strategy aimed at helping you through the various aspects of finding a job and building a career that you love. My name is Claire Zala and I'm a rising senior in Yale College. I work with the Common Good and Creative Careers team to support Yale students interested in pursuing careers that make a difference and encourage creativity. Today I'm joined on the podcast by Yalin Chang, Yalin graduated from Yale College and is an Emmy-nominated screenwriter and executive producer. She has worked on shows such as ER, Jades of Blue, Supergirl, and most recently, The Handmaid's Tale. Thank you so much for joining me in the studio today, Yalin. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> Likewise. Um, Yalin, you've collaborated on some very recognizable projects. What do you think first drew you to television writing and producing? Sorry, could you, what was, what's the question? Sorry, yeah, absolutely. Um, what do you think first drew you to television writing and producing? What kind of inspired you to, to work in that space? So I um, always loved television. I loved television when I was growing up. Um, my parents and old, two older sisters and I would always gather around the TV on Friday and Saturday nights and we'd watch these like 9 p.m., 10 p.m. hour long dramas like, um, Dallas and Dynasty and Falcon Crest. And that was how we learned, you know, what America is. And so I have these very, um, you know, poignant memories of, you know, the five of us sitting there in front of the TV. And usually my middle sister, Yain, was giving my mom a manicure at the same time. And we would eat fruit and out of big bowls and we'd watch these shows. And that was started from when I was really little. And then as I got older, um, I started watching other shows like L.A. Law and um, China Beach. And um, in high school, I watched like 30-something, which I loved. And I just always really loved the form of the hour-long um, drama, like the hour-long network drama. Um, it just, I loved how the characters came back to you every week. I loved the, you know, sort of serialized soap opera storytelling. Um, and I loved how, you know, these stories and these characters would visit you in your living room every week. So just as a form, I really loved it. Um, and then, um, when I was at Yale, I worked on the Yale Herald, which was a really great experience. And I even started, but I was also a fiction writer. And I started um, this Yale Stories column, which was kind of like a TV show, but it was like a column every week in a serialized, in, in serialized storyline with a bunch of different writers. And so I think I wrote the first one and then I had other fiction writer friends, you know, write uh, weekly installments of it. And then I remember um, another, uh, uh, there was another writer like in my literary society who I'd given the column to and he just killed all the characters. <laughs> and then I think I ended up, um, his, name, his name was Arthur Bradford and he's a, I think a successful writer now. So anyway, so he killed all the characters. Oh, and then it's possible actually that then me and a friend of mine, I think Kevin Delaney, this is who was the editor in chief of the Herald who started this magazine Quartz, which is great. Um, he 
and I, I think stayed up late one night to like revise it so that he wouldn't, so that everyone wouldn't die. And so it was one of these, you know, Thursday nights at 2 a.m. We like wrote a whole new story or something like that. Anyway, um, you know, I had some of my great friends who are still my friends who wrote installments of that. And then I think this other, you know, super famous Yaley, way more successful than me, um, John Hodgman, I think I ended up giving the column to him and it just ended up being stories and I have no idea if it's still the Yale Herald but it ended up just being a short story like one fiction page every week which I love um so and I, I love the, the collaborative nature of TV too and the idea that you have like a group of people sort of like a a Yale seminar or something you have a small group of people working on a project I loved that um although um Although now one of the big pieces of advice I give to people who are new to television writer rooms is that it is not a college seminar. It's not about sharing your, you know, sort of academic uh, thoughts. It's about like solving problems and pitching story ideas. Um, but anyway, so I always loved TV. Um, and then one summer between years at Yale, I remember going to the Scarsdale Public Library and taking out a book that said how to become a TV writer. And it was written by uh, someone who had written like a single freelance episode of Dukes of Hazard or something like that. But she said, you know, her advice was just basically to write, to write a spec script, that that's what kind of could get you in the doors, that you would look at, um, existing TV shows and you'd write a script as if you were a writer on one of those shows to show that you can write uh, in someone else's voice and write to an existing show. So um, I wrote a spec party of five and then um, I was given the advice like since that's a soft show to write kind of a hard more hard-hitting show and so then I wrote uh, Law and Order and at the time you know, you'd send away to like, you'd send a check to a place called Script City and you'd say, I'd like to buy five scripts of Party of Five or five scripts of Law and Order and then they would mail them to you. And so I'd read them and study them and then I just mimicked them. Um, and then um, I wrote, um, uh, my, my, my boyfriend, now husband, who also went to Yale, told me to write, um, like an original script, so I wrote a pilot about basically my life in New York City as a as a reporter at Newsweek magazine, and so those were my first um, those were my first scripts um, to kind of break me into the whole business. And so, did you when you graduated? Were you able to get a job with using those scripts, or was there more of a gap in between? No, I mean, when I graduated, so what happened was the first thing I did out of college was I was an intern at Newsweek magazine. Um, so I kind of went the journalism route since I'd worked at the Yale Herald. I ended up just applying to a bunch of different places and there were Newsweek had a paid internship. So I ended up landing there in the culture section. Um, and that was great. I was there from 1994 to 2000. I started as an intern and then I got a job there as a fact checker researcher and eventually I worked my way up to being a reporter and kind of the fifth string critic in the arts section so for like movies and television and music and classical music and books and it was really great so I everything that happened like in the culture between 1994 and 2000 I have a pretty good handle on <laughs> not after that but it was a great job because you know 
um, every week I'd get just, you know, piles of CDs and um, theater tickets and movie screening invites and, um, you know, and so I just sort of uh, devoured culture the whole time. Um, so I worked there and I had this great sort of kind of cushy Tuesday through Friday schedule with Mondays off. And so when I wasn't working at Newsweek, I'd be working on these spec scripts. It seems it, like the job that you had, even if you weren't necessarily creating all the time as a full-time job, you were consuming a lot of um, work that seems to me would really help you learn about working in the industry and also um, developing your own kind of products. Yes, that I think it definitely helped me analyzing other people's cultural output. Um, and I think what I realized when I was there too was that I didn't want to be a critic. You know, that was sort of the path that I was on, but that I was kind of, um, instead of, you know, analyzing and criticizing after the fact, I was kind of jealous of the people who were getting to create, you know, mm -hmm. and I didn't want to, you know, and I sort of felt sometimes like in the world, worst versions of the job you were either just promoting something that a studio wanted you to promote or and you were kind of like a pr shill for someone or you were kind of um you know being mean to someone <laughs> you know you were right if you were writing something positive if you were writing something negative you were being mean to someone who had poured you know her heart and soul into creating something and um you know and you were just criticizing it so i think i realized that i didn't want to I didn't want to go along that path. Um, and I also felt strongly that there had to be kind of like a Chinese wall between my criticism and my journalism work. And then, you know, this sort of second thing of trying to pursue a career in television writing, because I didn't feel like, you know, it was, it wasn't kosher to, um, to kind of use any connections from journalism to, you know, jumpstart a TV writing career. And it wasn't really possible anyway, you know, and I, I didn't know anyone who was in the business or anything like that. Um, and um, and so I, I, anyway, I wanted to really keep those two things separate. And then um, I looked like your first TV show was actually ER. How did, how did that come about? Oh yeah, well actually, so my first TV show was actually a show called Deadline that oh, aired in on NBC. So what happened was, um, you know, on the weekends and on Mondays when I wasn't working at Newsweek, I worked on these spec scripts. And then I, once I had them, I had to send them somewhere and I didn't know what to do. <laughs> and um, the Writers Guild East was actually located on like 57th Street. I don't know if it's still there. And Newsweek was on 57th Street. Um, sort of three long blocks away. So one day I walked over to the Writers Guild East and I got this big sort of, you know, mimeographed uh, packet of uh, names of agencies. And um, I just started sending them my scripts and sending some of my articles and letters about myself. And I did that for probably two or three years and I got nowhere, absolutely nowhere. You know, I must have sent like 40, 50 letters and articles, and I just did, really didn't get anywhere. But finally, I met a girl, uh, or I knew a girl who knew an agent, and she had gotten passed on by him. Like, he, he did, decided not to represent her, but I was able to write that guy and say, I, you know, know this person, and please read my stuff. And he, at the time, I didn't know it, he 
had just been promoted. Like he was an assistant in an agency and he was just starting to um, be an agent himself and he was looking for clients to sign. I was very lucky. And he read my stuff and then he um, applied, uh, he applied for me to something called the Warner Brothers Writing Workshop, which is now a very established thing, but that was the very first year that it started was this writing workshop. And so I applied to them and they actually accepted me. Um, but I was in New York at the time and the workshop was in LA. And so I decided not to do the workshop because I couldn't, but then that agent said, okay, but I'll sign you. And so that first year he, you know, sent all my material everywhere. He set up like 40, 50 meetings for me. Um, and that's how I got my very first job at Deadline. And Deadline, I was lucky. They were sort of looking for former journalists because it was a show. It was a Dick Wolf show. So Dick Wolf, who created Law & Order and all the Law & Order spinoffs and now all this Chicago Fire spinoffs, he, um, he decided to do um, a journalism show based on the New York Post. And so they were looking for former journalists. And so that was my very first job. I got a job on that show. And they actually, with this, it was funny, it was my first experience in Hollywood. So since they were, you know, doing a show about the New York Post, they literally bought a building near Chelsea Piers um, that used to be the old New York Post building. And so we literally like wrote and shot the show there inside that building. Um, and that was my very first job. And it was great. I wrote and produced two episodes and um, we, they aired five episodes of it on NBC and then it got canceled right away. <laughs> um, but uh, so I was, but, but coming off that show, I then wrote two episodes of a lifetime show called Strong Medicine. And then at the end of that year, I um, pitched, um, I became one of like five people to pitch for a freelance episode on ER. And I ended up getting that job. So I wrote a freelance episode of ER. And, um, and then my second year in television, I ended up working for the show called Ed, which was also thankfully shot in New Jersey. And so, it, um, and so I worked there and at the end of that year, I got an offer to go work on ER. And so um, Ed, which was on, when was it? Oh, I think Ed was on NBC. They let me out of my contract and I went to go work for ER. And so I moved out to LA and that sort of really launched things. You've mentioned also that you were a producer on several of these shows. Could you talk more about the distinction between writing and producing and kind of how that evolution happened for you? Yeah, so in television, um, you start off as a staff writer. It's almost like a law firm. It's very, you have these very concrete levels. There's staff writer, and then above that is story editor, then executive story editor. After executive story editor, you become a co-producer. And then it goes co-producer, producer, supervising producer, co-executive producer, and then EP, executive producer. So um, writers in television naturally sort of over time become producers because because um, oftentimes the shows are serialized and you're following, you know, stories and characters throughout, you need writers um, involved in production to really make sure that everyone is watching out for the stories and the characters and the integrity of the characters as you've created them. So what that means is that once you write a script and it goes into production, um, 
you often go to production meetings where you talk about, you know, and you give your opinions and thoughts about what the props should be. You go into casting and you help decide who you're gonna cast in the episode, what actors you're gonna hire. You look at the costumes and you make sure the costumes are you know, also telling the story that you wanna tell. And then um, most importantly, you end up working with a director. Um, so you know, in television, you end up having a series of different directors coming in to direct different episodes um, while the writers stay the same. So as a writer, you have a really good sense of what's coming you know, in the episode before yours and what's coming in the episode after yours. So then you um, sit down with the director and you have a tone meeting where you go through the script page by page and you talk to the director about, you know, what you feel the important moments are to hit and what the scene is really about. And the characters are saying X, but they really mean Y. Um, and then, um, and then you, uh, when you're shooting, um, sometimes you'll go to set and you'll sit with the director and you'll watch the takes and you'll see, you know, if the actor and the director, if they're getting what you feel you need to tell the story. Um, so that's, so producing, um, you know, is, you're involved in pre-production, you can be involved in shooting. And then sometimes if you're still on the show, you can be involved in, editing the show afterwards, where you go into the editing room once it's all shot and you work on, um, you know, like what kind of music you want or what songs you think would be good or what frames would be good, whether you should cut some scenes, whether you should cut some lines in some scenes. Um, and so that, so you can be involved ultimately in sort of every step of the process. So for a show like Handmaid's Tale, which is highly relevant today, very dynamic and massively popular. How, how did you approach kind of the responsibility of shaping that show's kind of story and tone? So that, um, so our, the creator of the show, Bruce Miller, set a really strong tone for that show from the very beginning. Um, and what I feel, what I love about the show and what makes my job really easy on the show is that we literally have one job, which is to tell the truth and to be as honest as we can about, I mean, or as honest as possible about who these characters are and what they're going through and how you see the world. So what I really, really love about this um, job is that like literally you go in every day and all you have to worry about is just doing the very best job you can possibly do, you know, um, because of the kind of show it is and also the support that we get from MGM, our studio and Hulu, which is an amazing streaming network, you know, they just want, they, they would never ever tell us, um, you know, like wrap this up in a pretty bow or, you know, let's have, like a feel good moment here. Like you would never do that. You're just allowed to kind of follow the story and the characters organically where they should go. And you're able to, you know, do stories where you really just talk about what would really happen. You know, so for example, um, I wrote this episode where our main character, June, gets to see her daughter who's been stolen away from her. Um, and she gets to see her daughter for 10 minutes. Um, and she hasn't seen her in three years, and she'll never see her again. So this was both a 
hello and goodbye scene in a reunion scene. And in this scene, um, you know, it's just a really kind of heart-wrenching thing that happens. I did a ton of research to find out what happens in these kinds of, you know, um, hellos and farewells. And I talked to a lot of social workers who have seen this happen, you know, who unfortunately these sorts of things happen all the time with children in foster care or when parents are, you know, separated from their children in war or, on, along the Mexican border. These scenes kind of play out all the time. And they're not, um, you know, I could imagine on a different kind of show, on a different kind of network, that you would want this, uh, this scene to be just incredibly warm and fussy. And there are parts of it that are warm and fussy, but then there are parts of it that are just really brutal and heart-wrenching. And so, again, you know, that's um, an example of, uh, of, you know, a scene in a story that we could tell just in the way that is in in the way that it would really happen. That sort of is what I think all TV writers are trying to do is to tell the truth of what would really happen. You know, um, I mean, I worked on other shows where you'd hear, you know, an executive say to you, "Well, what's the promotable moment? What's the most promotable moment?" We never ever do that in terms of breaking down our stories, really. I do actually remember that scene. I remember how emotional, but at the same time, uncomfortable it was. Um, and especially, in, and that's, that's a big feat to have accomplished in a show that has many, many uncomfortable and, and tragic moments. Um, to be able to capture that was just really amazing. Um, yeah. I'd also um, love to ask, uh, TV today, um, there's been a lot of talk about how it has evolved and changed, especially with streaming services and bingeable content. Um, what do you think is important um, skill-wise or, or otherwise um, for, success, for writers to be successful working in entertainment and television today? Um, well, I kind of feel like it's what's always been most important for all writers, which is to um, you know, really adhere to the principles of good writing, which is to be very honest and to be extremely specific and um, to try and really dig deep inside yourself in order to tell a story that feels real, you know. Um, and so, you know, our character a lot of crazy stuff happens to her and it, the you know the world of the show is a world that you know is mostly not like our world although it is a little bit like our, wor our current world in certain scary ways but you know it's um but it's like an america that doesn't exist right now um and even despite the show being you know sort of a dystopian nightmare and things haven't happened you know, ha happening in our show that haven't happened in reality, um, the way that you can tell stories that are relatable is that you you try and, you know, um, really dig deep. So, for example, you know, in that scene I was just talking about, to write that scene, I really had to imagine what it would be like if, you know, one of my three boys or all three of my boys had gotten kidnapped. And if I didn't get to see them for three years, and then if I got to see them again, but only for 10 minutes, like what would happen and how they would react, you know? So I had to sort of go to this dark place in my imagination. Um, our main character, June, also, she has, you know, um, 
she has a lot of shame. And so I had to really think about, you know, times in my life when I've experienced that and what that feels like, you know, um, and then extrapolate outwards so that I could have her, you know, think about what she would do when she was feeling shame or any emotion really, elation or pride or, you know, a guilt. Um, so, you know, I think that, yeah, the, 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 the more specific uh, you can be in your writing, then the more original it is. And the more you, um, you know, television writing is an interesting thing because when you're on staff of a TV show, your job is to write in the voice of the show, but it's in a way to marry your own very specific and individual experience with the voice of the show. So it is sort of this uh, balancing act of you have a show to service, but you also are not going to be doing a good job writing if you're not, um, you know, being specific to your own point of view. And yeah, Lynn, we're just about at the end of our time here, but I wanted to ask you, and you can interpret this however you want, um, what are your hopes for the future moving forward? Uh, well, I mean, my very concrete hope is that we get testing and tracing figured out ASAP. That's a great priority to have. <laughs> <laughs> because I think, feel like that's the only way we can, you know, practically move forward. I feel like there are you know, concrete examples of countries that have figured this out, like Taiwan, where my family is from, and, you know, South Korea, and why we can't just do that is, you know, infuriating. Um, you know, I mean, I have, like, super concrete hopes, which is that, um, you know, my kids can go back to, we can figure this out, and my kids can go back to school. Um, but, uh, um, so I, those are the first things that come to mind, you know, is that I want my kids to be able to go back to school and to resume their sports activities <laughs> so that they're healthy. <laughs> um, and then, um, uh, let's see, I don't know, did you, were you just thinking about like what will happen to the world in general or? I don't know, people have really uh -huh. different uh, kind of takes on that question. I just think it's a really interesting one to ask because People sometimes talk about where they hope their career will go or, or a dream they hope they'll be able to accomplish. Or some people have literally just said, like, I hope that, you know, one day we'll be able to solve X problems in the world. And I think it's great because I get, because you're such a fascinating person and get to talk to many fascinating people. It's great to see the kind of visions that people have developed for themselves and for others. Yeah. 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 Um, that's interesting. Um, well, let's see, on a, you know, on a global level, I feel like, or a historical vantage, I, I feel like I hope we, you know, the truth can reassert itself. That's the big thing, is that, you know, and that people can um, start to look at the world through, by trying to really understand it, rather than like putting a, you know, partisan lens over something to make the world conform to what you think, you know, but to really open you know, my hope is that people really open their minds and, you know, get truth and facts and knowledge and that that will, that, that, that will return <laughs> or that, and that will reign supreme. Um, and then on a personal level for me, um, you know, I feel like, uh, oh, you know, one thing I've learned in this quarantine is the, 
the being able to like take things slowly has been interesting for me. You know, my life is usually extremely hectic with a full-time job and, you know, three boys um, who are all school aged. And um, so just on a personal level, I've learned to try and, uh, you know, it's sort of ironic, but you know, um, I don't know, I'm trying to learn to slow down. <laughs> Yeah. That, yeah. that's a great goal to have for sure yeah <laughs> Rowan, uh that's all the time we have for today but thank you so much for joining me and talking to me and about your career i really enjoyed it and so glad you could make it thank you it's been a pleasure talking to you too 